time at this moment, though, for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? I'm doing great. You know, the only trouble is once you climb out from underneath your desk, the world's still there. <laughs> That's, oh, oh. <laughs> it's like it depends on how much society actually collapses. Do we have to go to work or do we have some time to rest? Um, really, I must say that that's right up there with if you ever go to the Diefen bunker outside of Ottawa that was designed for government entities in the event of a nuclear attack. One of the disappointing tiny offices uh, that they decided was critically important in the event of a uh, devastating nuclear war uh, was to uh, have an office dedicated to CMHC mortgages. Uh, so that's right. Even if the uh, Canada was, was decimated by nuclear attack, there would be three people with a computer and a telephone ready to phone you up and ask you about your mortgage payment. So, you know, even one of the very few benefits of devastating nuclear attack that you might think would accrue to you, not having to pay your mortgage, don't count on it. They were ready to uh, keep going in the event of uh, the worst case scenario. Yeah, I was going to say they might as well take my mortgage debt and etch it on the golden disc on the Voyager spacecraft. So millions of years from now, lost civilizations will be able to find it. Um, when we when we take a look at the stories on the agenda today, one of the things that I have found very interesting, the segments that we've done, Michael, is you've reminded us about reminded us about the jurisprudence that existed in Canada decades ago, pre charter that allowed for things that nowadays, of course, we would not permit. And there's also some curious examples of how the social problems that we grapple with today have been dealt with, or in some cases not dealt with in the past. And you have an interesting example off the top. You're exactly right. You know, and when I uh, reread this uh, piece of legislation, it caused me to think, you know, gee whiz, is everything uh, old uh, new again? Um, and the particular piece of legislation that caught my historical legal eye is a British Columbia Act called the British Columbia Heroin Treatment Act. Uh, and it's an act uh, which came into force in 1979. Uh, and before it came into force, there was a uh, interesting article in the New York Times talking about British Columbia's uh, bold decision to uh, make treatment for heroin compulsory, uh, hoping to end uh, Canada's worst drug problem. Uh, and uh, that uh, story indicated that British Columbia uh, then in 1970, it was 1978, before the legislation was passed, uh, estimated there were 10,000 heroin users, uh, which represented 60% of the heroin users in Canada living in British Columbia. Uh, and they uh, described the British Columbia described the problem, including uh, a large number of young drifters, was the language used then, attracted to the mild climate and easy life uh, in British Columbia. And the story went on to talk about how the government was concerned about crime, in this case in Vancouver, particularly violent crime, which had risen markedly, uh, and which the police uh, attributed 60% of that violent crime to be drug-related. So many of those uh, things probably could be written in the the story today, although I rather suspect the number of 10,000 would be... uh, completely uh, inadequate uh, to estimate the number of people who are now dealing with opioid addictions in British Columbia uh, based on things such as the number of people that are dying of that uh, each and every day. And so the British Columbia response to that in 1979 was to pass that act I mentioned, the Heroin Treatment Act. And the Heroin Treatment Act has some echoes of the uh, current uh, version of the uh, Mental Health Act we have that would permit somebody to be involuntarily committed for treatment if they're uh, uh, suffering from a mental illness and they're a danger to themselves or others. Uh, But this particular act uh, allowed 
a police officer who had reasonable grounds to believe that someone was dependent on a narcotic, and narcotic was defined to be heroin, opium, uh, opioids, or other substances like those with similar properties. Mm-hmm. And it would permit a police officer to serve somebody with a notice that they were intended, they were required to attend between 24 and 48 hours later to a coordination center. Uh, And if they didn't attend, there could be an application to a judge for a warrant to have them arrested and brought to a coordination center. And when an individual would attend a coordination center, uh, there was a requirement there be an assessment done to determine whether they were, uh, in fact, uh, dependent on a narcotic. And that could include uh, blood tests, urine tests, uh, psychiatric uh, assessment. And there was a requirement that within 60 hours of the person attending there, and they could be held for up to 72 hours for this kind of assessment, there would be a report prepared. Uh, and then a panel would, an evaluation panel would determine whether the person uh, was indeed uh, dependent on a narcotic. Um, if they were, the choice was either they could agree to stay for treatment, and if they didn't agree, uh, then there could be a, an application made to a judge in court to determine whether the person should be committed for treatment. If they were committed for treatment, uh, the Act provided uh, that the treatment program would last for three consecutive years. That came from an examination of uh, a success or lack thereof of a compulsory treatment program in Japan where they determined that the treatment program wasn't long enough. And so the BC Heroin Treatment Act had a a period of three years for treatment, and it provided that during those three years, a person could be kept in a treatment center, so closed, secure treatment, uh, for not more than six consecutive months or a total of one year, subject to an application to a board of review uh, that could order a person to continue uh, secure treatment for longer than that. The uh, government uh, indicated that they were going to build a hospital, secure hospital facility with 150 beds. Uh, That seems a little small, but that was the plan, Uh, with the idea that uh, many people could be treated on an outpatient basis, uh, but for people that required secure treatment uh, that was ordered by a judge under this act, uh, they would have a secure facility for treatment for uh, somebody who's addicted to then heroin or other opioids. What then happened is that there was a court challenge to whether uh, this scheme was constitutional. Uh, And given the pre-charter timing, the court challenge was on the basis of a division of powers argument. And the BC Civil Liberties Association funded a a test case, and their argument was uh, that uh, dealing with narcotics was a criminal law matter, and that was federal, and so the province had no jurisdiction to do this. Uh, And so they brought a challenge in court, and at the trial level, they succeeded. And a judge, Supreme Court judge, found that this was outside of the constitutional jurisdiction of the province. Um, that put a, the brakes on all of this. Uh, there was an appeal from that to the B.C. Court of Appeal, and the province succeeded. In a 5-0 decision, the Court of Appeal found that uh, the B.C. Heroin Treatment Act was constitutional. Uh, that was then appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada, and again, the Supreme Court of Canada found that the, the B.C. Heroin Treatment Act was constitutional. Uh, that uh, decision out of the uh, Supreme Court of Canada uh, finally came in 1982, so just a few years later. So that's the final word on whether the province could, at least from a jurisdictional division of powers basis, uh, do this. So the Supreme Court of Canada said, yes, they could. But by that point, several things had happened. First of all, time had gone by. There'd been some delay in all of this. The Minister of Health had changed. 
there was public pushback about whether uh, this was fair, whether we should be uh, requiring people to attend compulsory uh, treatment. The Civil Liberties Association and others were opposed to it, saying people should be able to choose whether they get treatment or not, and if so, what kind of treatment they would get. Uh, and the hospital didn't get built, uh, and then by 1985, the legislation got repealed. Huh. And so that is the history of it in British Columbia. We've been here, right? We've been here uh, at a point where there was concern about drifters uh, moving to British Columbia, a large number of them using drugs, violence being the result of that, and the legislation was actually passed with this entire scheme in place with a review process and appeal process and process to appeal a decision to the Court of Appeal. We had the whole thing in place, uh, but it got derailed at least initially by that first court decision finding that it wasn't constitutional. And then things just went off the rails and things moved on and it got repealed. Uh, and as we talked about before, we, we do have currently legislation in place. It's a mental health legislation which yes. allows for the involuntary treatment of somebody who is a danger to themselves or others as a result of a mental disorder. Right. Yes. And so there certainly could be an argument that we current ha- currently have would permit this. But really the critical point here, the thing that really is needed is that hospital they talked about the place for treatment. Yes. And if you have a place like that built, of course, to my mind, the first place to start would be who wants treatment? Put your hand up, come here. It's available, right? We don't need to worry about whether we are compelling people to get treatment until we start with all the people that want treatment and are putting up their hands, which don't have a place to go currently, that should be immediately available. And so whatever somebody's view of whether this act was a good idea or whether there should be a, uh, you know, a 2024 version of the then heroin treatment act for 1979 or whether the mental health legislation should be used. And there are reasonable debates to be had about that, right? Uh, should somebody be compelled to do that? On the other hand, maybe somebody gets to a certain point in addiction where they're unable to make uh, a decision about something that has a very high probability of killing them eventually. And maybe there is an argument for, in some cases, compelled treatment. And that's a good debate to have, and we should have it. We've had it before. Yeah. Um, but what we should start building, it seems to me, is that maybe the 150 beds a little small, but a good start, start building. Uh, and, you know, we, we proposed this back in 1979, 1978, get going. Uh, and, uh, you know, once we have something in place where there will be a place to go, we can then have a good discussion about how should we fill that. Uh, and I rather suspect, given the large number of people that are dying, uh, that uh, at least whatever structure is built initially, you're going to fill it by just put your hands up or show up and we're ready to give you a hand to stop doing what you're doing. Uh, and if there's any space left, we can then have the debate about whether there should be some process in place, whether this one or something else, uh, to get people in there who can't make that uh, decision for themselves and putting themselves and their lives in grave jeopardy. And none of this is new, right? Back to 1978, right? Violence on the street and drug addiction and what do we do about it? We've been struggling with it since then. Uh, and the, the real shame in all of that, the legal machinations and the history of the act and the politics behind it, is the hospital. Get, get building. <laughs> so that's the BC Heroin Treatment Act. We've been here before. Indeed. We can argue over thresholds for um, non-voluntary treatment, but if we don't have anywhere to actually um, administer that treatment, it's ultimately moot. 
That's right. It's yeah. sort of, what's the point? I mean, we currently have that mental health act. The police could theoretically pick somebody up and say, look, uh, you appear to be suffering from a mental disorder. Uh, you're a danger to yourself. Look, we found you passed out head down on Pandora uh, Avenue on the sidewalk. Uh, you know, you were, you've been revived several times by, you know, naloxone or something. If that doesn't happen, you're going to die. If you're looking at the thresholds, do you have a mental disorder and are you a danger to yourself? It seems to me there's a compelling argument to be made for somebody who's in that kind of a cycle being using and repeatedly revived after, you know, uh, avoiding death, that it would meet the criteria for even the legislation we have, the general legislation we have in place. Hmm. But what is the doctor supposed to do? Right. When you sort of the police officer brings the person to the hospital, here we have this person, here's the history, here what we're, we're looking to help. If they don't have a place to put the person to help them, what is what are they supposed to do? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, that seems to me, regardless of the legitimate debate about whether we should compel somebody to get the help, get working on the place to get the help, uh, because uh, there's just so many people involved. And not only is it obviously a grave danger to the people who are using it, using these substances themselves, but it uh, just like it was in 1978, uh, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, violence and crime and social disorder that flows from people who are spending every waking moment, you know, shoplifting, breaking into cars and committing minor offenses in order to get money to buy drugs, which then may kill them. Um, and so uh, we really need to get on it uh, because it's, uh, it has all of those uh, knock-on effects on everyone, not only the people who are addicted to these things, but all the people who, you know, deal with the effects of it, all the small business owners downtown, people who are walking around and have random things happen to them, cars are being broken into. It's a serious issue, and we should address it. And there is a path to address it, uh, but uh, it requires, as a start, a place for the treatment to be provided, and then we can have a good debate about uh, who should get the spaces. But uh, for heaven's sakes, let's get the spaces built. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, we'll take our first break here. We will be back in just a moment. Legally speaking continues here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, we have, let's see, just over eight minutes remaining and a couple of stories to get through, but they took a lot more than eight minutes to come to the point where we can <laughs> describe them. That's right. Both of these stories deal with the issue of delay in moving a civil case forward. Uh, and what's going on there is that unlike in a criminal case where somebody's being prosecuted for something, where there's always a next court date, because frankly, it's bad news for those people involved. And if you didn't have something to kind of drive the process forward, it might not move along. Mm -hmm. right? But in a civil case where you're suing somebody for money, it kind of depends on the parties to move the case along, like schedule a date for trial or schedule a date to do something, right? And if the part into private people don't do anything, it doesn't go anywhere, right? Yep. And so this, both these cases involve, should the case be dismissed because of just how slowly things moved? And the first case is an interesting fact pattern. It's a fellow who worked for Great Canadian Casinos, and he'd worked there for 25 years, and eventually he worked his way up to a, as a security manager. Uh, and back in 2015, he was fired without cause, and that's important, and it was agreed by the casino. They terminated him for some reason not to do with his performance, and they paid him at the time, eight-week severance, which is what's required under the Employment Standards Act. But I should pause there to say that the Employment Standards Act is not the only basis upon which somebody might be entitled to uh, payment uh, in lieu of notice if they're fired without cause. Uh, there can be, there's a common law 
concept that uh, that would be a part of an employment contract, and often the amount of notice a person would be entitled to would be longer than what's required by the Employment Standards Act. Hmm. And that can particularly be the case for somebody who's like a very long-term employee, and particularly so where somebody's in a very senior specialized position. And the concept there is that, you know, if you had a job which was not a very senior position, let's say you had a job working at a uh, McDonald's restaurant and you were fired without cause and given notice, you would have an easier time finding an equivalent job at another fast food restaurant, for example, right, than you might have if you were the CEO of McDonald's and got fired. You might say, well, there's just not many other positions like that, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you might be required more time to go find an equivalent job. So that was the basis for the claim. Trouble was, uh, this fellow who was fired uh, about a year or so after he was fired uh, was diagnosed with ALS, and then he passed away in 2018, huh. and then nothing really moved. Um, he had an executor, um, I think it was his sister, uh, who wanted the thing to proceed, but the lawyer who was originally dealing with the case just didn't do anything for like six years, hmm. <laughs> um, and so the claim didn't move along. Now, the other interesting thing is that this kind of a claim can proceed even if the person's passed away, right? That doesn't end the responsibility uh, to have paid the severance at the time or uh, pay in lieu of notice. And so uh, the lawyer who was responsible for it took the blame. He said, look, I didn't move this thing forward. It was my fault. I should have done it. You know, probably a factor being the client was no longer alive. But nonetheless, the lawyer said it was his fault. He should have moved it along. Um, and uh, so the uh, court had to sort out on an application by the casino to get the case dismissed for what's called want of prosecution, whether that should happen or not. Uh, and the, as the court pointed out, dismissing something for want of prosecution is described as a draconian remedy, because it means that even if you've got a good claim, it's not going to get heard because you didn't get going fast enough, mm. right? Um, but the flip side of it is that the court rules are intended to produce like just and speedy in legal terms and an inexpensive determination of something on its merits. Yes. And so the court had to weigh, weigh well, what is this, right? Uh, and the judge hearing that application to dismiss it said, well, look, this is really close to the line uh, of being an inexcusable amount of delay, despite the fact that the lawyer has sort of fallen on his sword and saying it's my fault, Right. Um, and it turned on ultimately a weighing of whether there was prejudice uh, to the casino, like whether they would have had a harder time defending their case uh, because of the delay. And one of their arguments was, well, look, the man's passed away, so we wouldn't be able to ask him questions about things like what efforts did he make to mitigate his loss, which is a requirement. Like yeah. somebody's fired from a job, they have to try to find another job. You can't just you know, sit on your couch and smoke pot and hope you're going to succeed and make you a claim for being fired, right? You've got to try. And if you don't get something, then you could your damages would be, you know, what you lost out on when you weren't able to find an equivalent job. Now, that was a compelling argument, but ultimately, this was, I think, insightful. The, the judge found, look, this man passed away within a year and a half of the claim being filed. And so even if the thing went along very speedily, it's very unlikely there would have been a trial before he passed away anyways. Hmm. And so, well, that is a factor. And while there may be some lost opportunity to ask him questions about his efforts to mitigate, it wasn't caused by the six-year delay. It was just an unfortunate fact. Um, and the judge also found that the, you know, this was a factor in sort of the interest of justice, that it was a 
on the face of it, very strong claim, right? Because there are other cases for like managers with, you know, long experience where they've wound up with much more severance than the eight weeks required uh, by the act. And so those two things weighed in favor and ultimately the court decided uh, to allow the claim to continue. Uh, And so that was the decision in that case. And there was another case which was just uh, released a few days after that that involved an even longer delay. And this was a case where uh, a company that had a contract to maintain parks on Vancouver Island uh, was suing the province and uh, over a claim uh, of breach of contract and claiming that they weren't acting in good faith uh, in renewing this contract. Uh, And that case uh, involved a delay that was even longer than the six-year delay. This was a delay of not moving the case forward for 14 years. Hmm. Uh, And the province was saying, look, that's just excessive. You shouldn't be allowed to now continue the case. Um, And again, the judge had to weigh the desire to get things done promptly with largely the issue of prejudice, right? Because the issue for the province was, hey, we can't defend this case. And the province had an affidavit saying, look, the people who negotiated the contract have all retired. They retired in various years, 2004, 2006, <laughs> 9, 11, 14, and 16. They've all retired. Yeah. Um, but that didn't do it, interestingly. And the huh. judge said, look, I appreciate they've all retired, but that doesn't mean they're not available as witnesses. The fact they don't work for you doesn't mean they can't come and testify. And so the judge said, again, this is very close to the line. But, and it could, the analysis could change if like important evidence was no longer available because one of them, for example, passed away and you couldn't properly defend yourself. But the judge found that despite the very, very, very long delay, and again, described as close to the line, uh, the judge decided that at this point, the case would be allowed to proceed, which is really interesting. That's a very long delay, right? Yeah. And the notable thing is that the, we have a limitation periods for starting actions. Yes. But that limitation period is for when you have to start the action, not when you have to finish it. Yeah. <laughs> so once something gets going, even if there's long delay, uh, these are examples of, I, mean, I must say, the 14-year one is about as long as I could possibly fathom uh, in terms of not doing anything and still being allowed to go ahead. Uh, but the uh, judge said there, well, look, the court deals with old historic cases, criminal and civil, and judges can account for that. And there's no evidence here. These people aren't available witnesses just because they retired. And so it's allowed to continue, which is really interesting and perhaps an example of uh, why you can only get it stayed for delay if it's uh, going to prejudice somebody because it is such a draconian remedy. So both of these uh, will be allowed, at least for the moment, uh, to continue. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Legally Speaking. Thank you, Michael, as always. Thanks so much. Have a great day.